This is Adam Quadic from the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. The episode you're about to hear was originally a video interview. We are doing a series of webinars with the Real Estate Forums in their Thought Leadership Series. We've had a number of high-profile guests on so far with many more to come. If you prefer to see the live video, you can watch it at realestateforums.com. Whether you watch it or listen to it, the content is great. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Good afternoon. I'm George Prisbolowski, and welcome to the ongoing series since April of Canadian Real Estate Forum webinars. We're pleased today to present another insightful conversation with a highly respected industry executive. Colin Lynch is the head of Global Real Estate Investments at TD Asset Management. Working closely with the Alternative Investments team, he is responsible for the execution of the organization's global real estate strategy, overseeing fund design and structuring, implementation, and oversight of acquired assets. In this role, Colin manages investments in over 700 properties located in 120 cities worldwide. He joined TD Asset Management in October 2015 initially working with the senior executive team on corporate strategy. Colin was formerly the general manager of global strategy at AMIA and a management consultant at McKinsey & Company. He was also an investment banker at Morgan Stanley, where, among other duties, Colin was one of the advisors to Mark Carney, who at the time was governor of the Bank of Canada, on the country's financial stability during the financial crisis of 2008-2009. He is also a co-founder of the Black Opportunity Fund and a member of its steering committee. Today's discussion will examine Colin's thoughts on the market at this time, both domestically and abroad. The conversation will also focus on how he and his team are responding to the impacts of COVID-19, diversity and inclusion, and many other trends, challenges, and opportunities. He'll be interviewed by Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic of First National Financial, Canada's largest non-bank lender. Over the past three years, they have also built Canada's largest and most popular commercial real estate podcast, having conducted over 120 interviews. A few comments on some logistical elements of the technology we're using today. Depending on the depth of the discussion, there could be an opportunity for Colin to also respond to a few questions from you, the viewers. You can type a question in at any time during the webinar. Simply click the Q&A button on the left-hand side of your screen and then hit the Submit button. To improve your viewing and listening experience, you can move your webcast windows around by dragging on the title bar or resize them by clicking on the lower right corner. Today's session is being recorded and will be available for on-demand viewing. You'll be notified by email tomorrow with a link to the archive. Please pass the information along to other colleagues who are not able to watch today's presentation. And with that, Colin, Aaron, and Adam, the floor is now yours. Thanks so much for that intro. And I got to say that I'm glad that after reading Colin's bio and resume there, that you didn't run through mine or I would feel particularly unaccomplished in my 42 years on earth, because Colin's managed to do quite a lot with decades ahead of him. But welcome, Colin. This is going to be a great conversation today. As George already highlighted, we're going to talk about a couple of things, a lot to do with investment. You know, Colin's got a great view on the investment market from his role at TD, 
We're going to do it through the lens of his background, which actually is in history. So it'll be a little bit of a different take on that. And then we're going to spend a fair amount of time on you know the Black experience in real estate. As George said, please start firing questions in now. We have a lot of time at the end to go through them. But if we see them there now, we'll work them into our conversation with Colin. So please don't be shy. But let's get to it. You know, Colin is the, the man of the hour for the presentation today. You know, I'd love to jump into more about your background and what got you to where you are today, a more in-depth version than the brief highlight that George just gave to lead us in here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The background, I would have to say, relative to where I am today, is incredibly unconventional and unique. I grew up in northern Scarborough. My mom was an accountant. She was actually an auditor. My dad was a plumber. And I grew up with an ethos of incredibly hard work. And you know, my parents reinforced that fairly heavily. I go beyond that and say, I also grew up with a relatively unconventional childhood. And I spent a lot of time in the hospital in my first six years. And I think if I take that experience, which has motivated a lot of my community work to date, and I also look back at that experience and have said, I basically don't really have the luxury to perhaps accomplish everything I'd like to do over a very long period of time. You get that when in your first six years, you see a lot of stuff happen in a hospital. You then say, I like to make the greatest impact as quickly as possible. And so you combine that with my parents' philosophy that hard work works and you get a lot of the things that sort of motivated my childhood. I was highly engaged in music. I loved music. I did that tremendously, many concerts, etc. And most people thought I would become a professional musician when I finished high school. But two things happened. One is I had the tremendous good fortune to be part of a citywide orchestra. And we did a concert tour in Europe. And that opened my eyes to history in a very big way. And the second was my mom being an accountant sort of exposed me to this world of business where there's all these different subjects. And so rather than having to choose one, I could go and explore HR and I could explore finance and I could explore accounting. And in high school, I had no clue really what those all were. And so it felt like a great opportunity to go explore. And so off to university, I went. Hence, I ended up doing a history degree. I did a business degree or commerce degree, as we call it at Queen's. And then I did what's called the ARCT from the Royal Conservatory of Music. Did all that, got to the end of that undergrad experience. And my mom, who's fantastic, has a high bar, said, that's all wonderful, but you're not skilled in anything. And you need to go out and get a real skill. So that real skill was finance. And the point of graduation was 2007. And what did somebody do in 2007 graduating out of Queen's Commerce? You head straight into iBanking. So, you know, lo and behold, that one skill finance would be at the apex of what was the global financial crisis. And that was an incredible experience, I have to say. I actually wouldn't trade it for the world, but certainly learned a ton being at Morgan Stanley in that experience. I then went to Harvard. And Harvard for me was not about getting out of Morgan Stanley or iBanking or anything of that sort. It was a view growing up and particularly in undergrad that I had to that institution, its role in the world and the impact that it has. So I went there and I got into the law school and the business school, in addition to a couple other schools, Yale and Stanford, and then spent way too long deciding not to go to the law school and stuck with business. And then if I couldn't go another 90 degree turn enough, I had a big passion for commercial aviation and travel and transportation. And then so instead of just going and working for an airline, 
I found McKinsey and the Global Airlines Group and joined that initially out of Atlanta. Then I worked a little bit in Toronto, but ultimately lived in Chicago and worked with airlines everywhere, traveled the world and had a fantastic experience. And about six years ago, and I was also very involved in politics, but won't go into that. But six years ago, I was very involved in a Canadian political campaign while also working in this global role. And I basically said, my heart lies not in the US or abroad. My heart lies in Canada. And so I'm going to make the decision that felt right for me to move back to Canada. And through that political experience, I was introduced to Greystone. And that began the journey that I'm presently on. First with Greystone, then the firm was sold to TD. And in this role, moved from the head of strategy and growth for Greystone now to the head of global real estate investments for TD. There's a little bit to unpack there. Maybe before we go on, why did you say it took longer to decide or way too long to decide not to go to the law school? Yes, that was one of the most challenging decisions of my life to make for a couple of reasons. Number one, getting into law school is no small feat and writing all those practice LSATs and doing all of that stuff. So, you know, I invested a lot of time to get into law school. Number two is it wasn't unknown to me that the JD MBA program at Harvard has produced quite a few notable alumni over the years. Number three is I had a tremendous, and still do have interest in politics, but a tremendous interest in politics and the role of government and the role of the law in society. So those were three reasons why I applied in the first place. But I realized attending Harvard Law School's constitutional law class, which I thought I'd be highly interested in it, I actually fell asleep in the class. And then I went to Yale Law School. Yale Law School is an incredible place. And I was privileged to have gotten in there. But I also had trouble staying awake when I sort of sat in the classes. And so I just stepped back and said, am I really passionate about the study of the law? Is that something I'm going to look back on and say, I've grown so much as a person. Am I going to use this in what I'm going to do? Or is this just a degree collection exercise? And for me, you know, the painful reality was it was a degree collection exercise. Now, having gotten into these programs and they're quite prestigious, that took a while for that to sort of digest and realize, you know, at the end of the day, I really don't need to do it. If I'm not truly passionate about it, then it's probably best that I do something else. And I interviewed maybe 100 people, you know, senators in the U.S., members of parliament up here and other people that were kind enough to lend me their time. But that was a difficult decision to make. I think it was the right one, nevertheless, but it was very difficult. It would appear it is the right one. I mean, facetiously, I don't know how many times, but at least five, maybe 10 of our guests historically were lawyers and basically were collecting a degree, got into law, quickly realized they didn't like it. Now they're running a real estate firm. That's a typical trajectory where people think law is the right direction. But then, like you said, if you don't have the passion for it, it may not be the best career choice. Let's keep moving. It becomes apparent, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're now in a real estate role, but you don't have much of a real estate background. I'm sure throughout your different career career path, you got exposure to real estate, but maybe talk about maybe the benefits at times of not being born, raised real estate to give you maybe a fresh perspective in what you do today. Absolutely. And so credit to my boss and to the organization, Greystone Now TD, for seeing value in me to be in this role, first off. Second is, yes, I definitely do bring a very different perspective. One from somebody who has lived around the world to somebody who has 
being involved in organizations at a very senior level that do play in real estate. For instance, Toronto Community Housing Corp, where I was the vice chair of that organization. Three, somebody that sits on a number of other boards that are investors in real estate. And most fundamentally, if I step back from that and I say, running a building and running a global real estate fund is a tremendously complex exercise. You have the investment decisions and you, at the end of the day, have to deliver an outcome. You also have to build an organization. You have to build a team. You have to put the right skill sets around the table. And you have to sort of navigate the tremendous operational complexity, whether that's creating the entities, the tax efficiency, the regulatory dynamics, and all of that. And so there are transferable skill sets they brought into my role given the previous roles I had, whether that's you know the experience at the senior management level, whether that is building an organization, whether that is getting great talent or people. And at the end of the day, one of the things that being an iBanker or being at McKinsey teaches you is how to come up to speed real quickly on things, i.e. that 80-20 rule. And when you don't know, to surround yourself with experts and to become a quick study. And so part of the past five years has been me surrounding myself with experts and becoming as quick as to study as possible in real estate. Absolutely, I did real estate work at Morgan Stanley. And Morgan Stanley is a very big real estate investor then as they are now. So certainly had exposure there. Certainly, I live and breathe real estate. I personally invest in real estate, all that stuff. As a little kid, I was designing cities out of Lego and using all of those you know, cardboard paper to do all that stuff. So I love this stuff. But at the end of the day, in terms of bringing value to the role, it is all of those other things, the global experiences, building a great business, having a great sort of HR capacity while being an incredibly quick study on the world of real estate. So you mentioned that it was a little tough to keep your eyes open in law class. After five years now of intensive real estate study, what's the most exciting? What's the antithesis of that moment of nodding off in class that this role does bring for you? For me, there's a lot of areas of passion and interest. So hard to distill it down to one, but I'm going to try. We are in the fourth industrial revolution in the world. And this is a little bit of my history background coming out. And that is a highly, highly relevant theme for real estate today. That's what's going on in retail. That's what's going on in the industrial space. And within that, that's logistics. That is also the creation of entire new sectors of economies. And that's the growth of regions around the world and their ability to do things completely differently, right? We don't need to install a whole bunch of landlines. We went right to the mobile telephone. Now, just expand that into a whole variety of different areas. That's prop tech. That is the redo of how we work in addition to how we live. I can't get a more sort of exciting time to be an investor in real estate than today. And then if I step back from that and say, okay, how do I feel good about myself when I explain to people that aren't in real estate? At the end of the day, we are investors in communities. That's what we are doing. Whether that's how we define our cities today, it's the skylines that define our cities, modern today, or whether it is how we define our ability to give value to people's lives. It's where they live, work, and play, as we all know. I can't see something more fundamental and more important to how we live as a modern society than what we do. And so that's a long answer. Right now, there's even this year, there's so much going on and it's so dynamic and so interesting that I'm definitely not falling asleep. <laughs> you mentioned the fourth revolution. So before we move on, Colin, just define what that is in case some people maybe aren't holding on to the rope. And then two, I'll give you an opportunity just to kind of show your passion because I can sense the passion coming out when you're talking about real estate. Let's just talk about 
COVID, its implications on your investment strategy. And then something you said before we went live, which is about using your history background and how that provides a different perspective on real estate investment. So let's start micro COVID impact and let's go broad, that sort of high level your investment strategy. But define fourth revolution first. Yeah, fair point. And I've heard it talked about a lot, but I would say that it might not be as defined right now, only because historians tend to look back on a period and define the period, right? And very hard to define it while you're living through it. The fourth industrial revolution is the technological revolution that we're living through. It's the computers, it's the smartphones, it's the connected homes, it's the AI, it's all of that. That's the industrial revolution. It is not a small thing to call this the fourth industrial revolution. Previous ones have been the agricultural revolution, which went us from a place where we were concerned as a world we have too many people because we don't have the ability to grow enough food. Well, we figured out a way to mechanize production and farming and to do things like have nutrients for the ground and et cetera. So that was big. We also have the Industrial Revolution as well. And that produced things like electricity and coal and all of that stuff. So to say that we're in the fourth one is not a small point at all. As it relates to COVID and the impact of COVID, I'd say a few things. Number one, it's accelerating trends. And I think we all know this. It's accelerating some key trends that we were witness to coming into this dynamic, right? That's e-commerce, for instance. But it's also sort of accelerated the work from home trend. And you know, the trend ebbs and flows certainly was growing coming into this dynamic. And it's accelerated that trend during this dynamic. It has appropriately put a focus on resiliency and the ability of a portfolio of real estate to be resilient in terms of the income that it generates. And I think that income piece got a little bit sort of lost in the growth that we experienced in the last decade. And I think it's returned focus on what is the capacity of a portfolio to withstand shocks? And what is the diversification of that portfolio? What is the diligence behind who's running the portfolio? What is the geographic exposure and all those things? Those points come into stark relief in times like the ones we're living in now. But I would also say, and to the history point, you know, there's been a lot of talk about is office dead? Or there's a lot of talk about cities and their growth trajectory is dead. You know, one of the benefits I've had as a student of history is to study history and to study the development of civilizations over hundreds and thousands of years. And just for folks recollections. Over the last 500 years, we have seen pandemics, plagues that have wiped out far more people than COVID-19, as bad as it is, has wiped out today. We've seen great fires that have destroyed the majority of the structures in cities. We've seen cities bombed through major wars. Basically, every structural element of a city, speaking of World War II here, was damaged. Take Warsaw, for instance, take Dresden or take Tokyo. And so what's the point of me saying this? It's to say we've had all these bad things happen in cities. And what happens? We go back to living in cities and the cities grow. And so there's nothing in this dynamic that I look at today that says the trajectory of human civilization in terms of going to live in cities is going to change. And as it relates to the future of office, and that we're all going to sort of leave offices and not work in offices. And, you know, we're going to be working from home. The only thing I would say to that is, yes, trends come and go. At the end of the day, what's constant over thousands of years is humans are social beings, 
right? And if you look at why do people, when you have the ability to have tons of space around you, why do thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people choose to come live very close to each other? At the end of the day, fundamentally, we're social beings and we like interaction. So I don't doubt there's going to be more people working from home. I don't doubt that there's going to be economic turbulence, but I highly doubt anybody that says offices are dead and the CBD office is dead because some of the same people that are saying that today were the ones investing in offices in a big way last year. And sometimes some of those people are still investing in offices in a big way this year. Before we get to the next question, I just want to remind everybody that don't wait till the end of firing questions, fire it in now because Aaron and I would be happy to work them in. Given your history background, during periods of rapid change, of course, there can be major displacement or reorganizing of a hierarchy. And typically, it's the incumbent that comes out the losing side of that. Given that TD would firmly be established as an incumbent, as a, you know, a market force, do you ever see any weaknesses in that sense that TD's king of the heap for the current arrangement, if it appears a rapid change, that could shift? Do you see any weakness there? My dad had a phrase, and it rings in my head right now, and it's called, pride comes before a fall. That's a phrase that I keep personally, which is never get to a point where you think that you are all that, because usually that's the point before you make a big mistake. And I think from one of the things that raised them before and TD that I see doing now has been a very strong degree of introspection and critical examination of the environment around, whether it's the technological change or whether it's the portfolio of real estate and there's a critical analysis of decisions made and where the portfolio's position and TD as a broad organization, where the organization should go. The bigger you get, the more successful you become. Candidly, I think it's the harder it is to do that. But I do think that critical examination is important and that happens. If I come back to one of the earlier questions, one of the benefits of coming with an outsider's point of view is that one can, to some degree, ask the dumb questions, but one can draw, more importantly, analogies to other sectors, other industries, other situations, and simply ask the question, why is it different here? And so we do that a lot. I mean, one of the phrases I also have from my McKinsey's days is the obligation to dissent. And when we are looking at making an investment decision, one of the things I ask for is for people to actively dissent if they feel that they need to. Now, the dissent has to be based off of data versus hunch or based off of some form of reasoned intuition. But at the end of the day, it is better to voice dissent than it is to silently go along with a decision and regret it afterwards. That's one of the points that I personally advocate for. You know, share that with my boss when I joined, and he as CIO advocates for that as well. But that's one of the tools that you use to make sure that you don't have this view that you are so big, so large, so successful, so whatever, that you miss things. And it's when you have that view that you're so big, large, and successful that you actually miss things that actually start small and become really big. I agree. The, the constant self-verification is, is a great tool. And I know the question was a touch cheeky, and I'm, I'm glad you answered it. In the same sense, there appears rapid change. There is, of course, also opportunity. And given your very high-level view of you know, not just the real estate silo, but multiple silos, what are you most excited about for, you know, you're involved in investment. So what are you most excited about from an investment standpoint over the next, pick a time frame, five years? I think that from an investment point of view, let me talk geographies and then I'll talk property types. I am incredibly excited for Canada, Canada for the next five years. I think our immigration dynamic 
is a very positive one and it's going to be reflected in the resilient performance of cities going forward. And similar to that point, I'm very excited about Australia and New Zealand, similar immigration dynamic, and more broadly, very excited about the Asia-Pacific region, the developed Asia-Pacific, not just because of the connectivity to countries such as China and India, but also back to that technology point, many economies, Singapore or Japan, as we all know, South Korea, are at the leading edge of a lot of that technological revolution. So in particular, very excited about Melbourne, very intrigued about Seoul, and like what I see going on in Singapore. From a property type perspective, I think that's really interesting. I like defensive retail, I have to say. It was, I think, underappreciated going into the crisis. I think in the crisis, it's performed very well. And I think that there's going to be some broader appreciation of the value of defensive retail, the grocery, the DIY stores, etc. I get very intrigued when entire sort of sectors get painted with a broad brush. And that means that there's missed opportunity. There's opportunities within it. I am quite interested in certain parts of logistics worldwide. So Australia, very, very, very interested in the growth of logistics in Australia and the evolution of the industrial more broad property type in Australia, for sure. Certainly intrigued by life sciences, particularly in the Boston area. Obvious point, we're living in COVID, everybody's focused on vaccines. But beyond that, I think we are going to be spending a lot more money on healthcare going forward, not just because of COVID, but because of the aging population. And we will see a much greater need to make progress in other areas of healthcare as well. So I think that area is interesting. I think the data center space is going to become more institutionalized. I think that's going to be interesting as well. And then at the end of the day, hard not to get passionate about a great CBD office. And to the degree that people begin trading out of that, I think that's going to be a good opportunity in two, three, four years. So that's a long answer. You probably were just looking for one. (laughs) There's one one tip only is all I required, but long answers are much more appreciated. Makes our Uh, job easier. (laughs) I want to use a good chunk of our time today to talk about the Black experience in real estate. I mean, as directly based on our conversation today, there's a Black Opportunity Fund we definitely want to discuss. But just to set the stage for that entire discussion, Can you describe your experience in real estate from the Black perspective? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. I'm going to answer it from my perspective as an individual versus, you know, the representative of all Black people in real estate. But I would make a couple of comments overall. Number one, first and foremost, I think it is important to realize that most people are incredibly well-meaning, right? They want to do good for the world. They want to do good for their industry. And of course, we want to make a buck, but I think that's very important to realize as as the first point. The second point is there's a diversity on my team. And so when I go to different conferences, we're not in COVID, different events, that is very apparent relative to who else is in the room. So I'll talk about that in a sec. There have been moments where things have been said to members of my team by other people in real estate that you would sit back and say, we're in 2020. I would have expected those comments in 1950, maybe not even in 1964. But in 2020, for some people to make some of these comments, we've got a problem. You know, I would put that into, call it 1% or 2%. But all that to say, it still happens today. I think the bigger point for me is, I'm a bit of a, as one person from London told me, not what you expect when one walks through the room. And I think that's a big opportunity for the real estate industry. Number one, I'd say 
there's a ton of talent out there. As it relates to real estate, we've got an opportunity to leverage gender talent, which I think is vastly underrepresented in the real estate space, and also ethnic talent, which I also think is vastly underrepresented in many aspects of the real estate space. And why is that important? At the end of the day, you just make better decisions. Back to my obligation to dissent point, you have more voices around the table that are critically analyzing things in a different way. Why do we have investment committees? Because ultimately, the point is you have multiple people with their different perspectives challenging and discussing and debating an issue because you weed things out. And ultimately, at the end of the day, hopefully you're making better calls. If we didn't believe in that, we'd have a single person making the call for everything. But we know that leads to suboptimal outcomes. So why then have a single gender and a single race make the decisions for many different things? I mean, almost from first principles perspective, it's help make the decisions better by bringing in multiple perspectives. To say nothing about the reality that real estate's a service provider to the economy. That's what real estate is. It might be the most elemental service provider to the economy, but it is a service provider to the economy. So if that's what we're doing, then how are we incorporating the perspectives, the lived experiences, et cetera, of the people that live in the economy? And fundamental to me, I just think that at the end of the day, one delivers better outcomes by doing this, by reflecting the people in the society that you seek to serve, but also it's just candidly the right thing to do. But if I come back to real estate, I view this as a tremendous opportunity, just like I view real estate's adoption of technology as a tremendous opportunity. And it moves both ways. We have a clear gap in real estate, but also by closing that gap, I think that the outcomes are going to be so much better. Colin, talk about the objectives when you were constructing your team. Yeah. So what I wanted to do is create a team, number one, Clearly, all the things that you expect, really smart, intelligent, and capable people. But even there, everybody says they want smart, intelligent, capable, driven, the best. I would actually challenge folks, do you know that you're getting the best? If you go to two schools and you look at the same two clubs, and those two clubs are comprised of people, by clubs I mean student clubs, and they're comprised of people that have the sort of financial ability that they did not need to work a second or third or fourth job. And as a result, we're able to sort of invest their family's wealth in creating good sort of investment outcomes. And they demonstrate that to these clubs, get in these clubs, and then create more sort of great investment outcomes. And so when they approach an investment interview, they say, look, I've demonstrated investment experience. I love real estate. I was able to do X, Y, Z. Fantastic. But what about the people that weren't able to do that because they're working three full-time jobs, but nevertheless still have a 4.0 GPA average, right? So if I come back then to my point, my point is to find the best people, but just to look as far and wide as possible in getting those best people. And then to say, okay, fundamentally, what skills do we need? And in Canada, and I love Canada, I absolutely love Canada, I moved back to Canada. But one of the things as Canadians, we do not do well is we do not look at transferable skills. We're fantastic at saying, hey, you've got 10 years of experience doing A, so you're perfect to do A again. We don't say you've got 10 years of experience doing A, and that's just like D. So why don't we create a pathway for you to do D, to bring your perspective from A to D, 
and we'll put in the infrastructure to make you successful at D. We're terrible at that. In the US, they're much better, candidly. But when I looked at my team, I said, what do I actually need? I need somebody that can construct a portfolio. I need somebody that's great at acquisitions and transactions, that breeds that stuff, that is going to be a finder and hunter. I need somebody that knows the law internationally. I need somebody that's going to fight with the acquisitions persons and say, you need to manage risk. I need those perspectives and I need it in a team that is able to be candid and that's going to push back against me. Somebody that loves research, that was going to be happy reading reports all day and creating sort of summaries of it and pushing that and arguing with the transactions person. Somebody that has a real estate asset management background and property management background, et cetera. But I looked at that and said, where can I get the best people with those backgrounds? And some of those backgrounds aren't real estate backgrounds per se, right? But I thought that they're important. You mentioned the US and of course, a chunk of your career was spent there. Can you highlight the differences working in the two countries from that perspective? Yeah. So we are incredibly polite here in Canada in some respects. Maybe not when playing hockey, but when it comes to sitting in rooms and deciding certain things, we're very polite. And too many meetings where people sort of sit there and have things noodling in their heads. And you know, it's like a thought that's like, oh, I'm not really fully on board with this. But do we actually voice that in the meeting? Do we have a rigorous discussion or debate? I see a lot more of that in the US than I do in Canada. I think in Canada, we have ambitious people. I think that the aperture for ambition is just greater in the US. And I think the desire to build, it's present in Canada. Don't get me wrong, but I just think it's a much stronger element of the culture in the US. As it relates to the diversity point and the inclusion point, I just think people are much more comfortable being open to where they are. Right. So there's people in the US that are very comfortable saying, I don't care, and you will know. And then there are people in the US that are very comfortable saying, We need to do something. We're going to own this. We're going to talk about this. And you will also know. Whereas in Canada, we tend to sort of listen, not reflect, not engage as much, and sort of politely sort of sit by and then move on to the next topic of conversation. So You know, there's a bit more. And again, just to be clear, I came back to Canada because I love this country in comparison to living in the U.S. But those would be some of the key differences I've seen. That's interesting. I've certainly have multiple experiences where a decision was made, an outcome occurred, and then somebody that was in those meetings said, yeah, I thought that that outcome might happen like that. And it was maybe a negative outcome. I said, well, why didn't you say something? Like, you probably should have brought that up a year ago. We were making these decisions. Anyway, I've got 18 minutes left. I want to leave some time for Q&A. But I want to make sure that we're covering some of the topics, Colin, that you wanted to cover. And, you know, we prepped a little bit. And there's lots of things to cover still. So maybe I'll just throw it to you. Do you want to talk about the Black Opportunity Fund and the work you're doing with Dennis? Is that the best place to go now? Sure. And so why don't I just say on the Black Opportunity Fund, working with Dennis, working now with 200 other people involved, I think we are standing up something that is going to fundamentally improve the economic outcomes, not just for the Black community in Canada, but is going to contribute to the welfare of the whole nation. And in short, the Paracy version of the Black Opportunity Fund is a desire to raise over a billion dollars of capital, a permanent pool of capital focused here on the Canadian Black community, desiring to simply put scale up Black businesses, charities, and nonprofits. The reason being, there are so many doing such great work, so many innovative 
organizations, so many organizations that are doing tremendous work in terms of getting good outcomes across education, healthcare, youth, arts and culture, social justice, education. They just need more financial capacity. And so that's simply what we're doing. We've had tremendous engagement with the government across so many different cabinet minister offices and above, but also across the corporate community here in Canada. And we've had discussions with 70 corporations. We've onboarded a group of 50 professional fundraisers to engage with foundations and family offices. And I just have to say that I am humbled by the positivity and receptivity to this initiative. I am awed by the amount of time that a lot of people are giving to this to build it. And I'm inspired by what I think will be something transformationally positive for all of us here in Canada. It transformative is the right word. In a very short period of time, you managed to get a lot of positive press. You mentioned the number of people that's involved. There's a real large amount of momentum behind this now. So what do you envision? You're a young guy. You've got time ahead of you. 10 years from now, you're working with the Black Opportunity Fund. What's it doing? What are you doing for it? Well, I actually hope that in 10 years, we're going to have so many exceptional individuals within the Black community that are going to say, Colin, get off. We can do a better job than you. (laughs) I also hope that in 10 years, we've had a number of organizations, whether management consulting firms, law firms, executive search firms, et cetera, 10 of them that have helped build this pro bono. And I should say, we've spoken with, had dialogue with over a thousand Black businesses and organizations and charities. And that's important because in 10 years, this should still be around. B, it should be over a billion dollars in size. And C, we should be shifting outcomes. And in order to do that, we got to sort of listen to the people that are doing tremendous work and design something that reflects what their input is versus being somebody sitting in downtown Toronto, put on my cape and go proclaim the solution. So the only way this works in 10 years is if we've done our work and we continue to do our work to listen to the community across the country and we reflect the country, both French, English, all geographies and regions here in Canada. Gender is also important and sexual orientation is also important to reflect. But if we actually truly listen and solve for what actually needs to happen, that's the only way this will work in 10 years. And hopefully I'm kicked off in 10 years and people said, you're great, Colin. But we got better and bigger things that we want to accomplish with the Black Opportunity Fund. So we'll take it for here. To me, that's success. That's maybe a good transition because you mentioned diversity and inclusion is not just the Black experience or just race. It's about all sorts of marginalized people. You had mentioned before we went live an experience you had around sort of your belief or I'm not sure how to characterize it properly, but just with your interaction with the Aboriginal challenges that are that they're facing. And you mentioned the blanket ex- exercise. Maybe just describe that and what you found out. Absolutely. And I made that comment to say, I'm a Black individual, but I'm not the world's expert on diversity and inclusion. I've got a lived experience. And one of the things that I learned was a bit more about the Indigenous experience here in Canada. I sat on the board of the University of Queen's for nine years. And in in the last few meetings, there's a big focus on the Indigenous experience. And we had the blanket exercise done for the board. Won't go into all the details, but effectively, the black exercise puts you in the shoes of an Indigenous person in Canada from pre-European settlers arriving to the present day. And it was so transformatively impactful that at the end of that exercise, you had grown individuals 
grown females and males that are governors of a university sitting down around in a circle and they were breaking down, describing, like literally crying, describing their experiences. That's how impactful that blanket exercise was. And I have to say, I truly did not understand the experience of being an indigenous person in Canada until I actually did that exercise. And so if I then say, why is that relevant? I think, and I go back to, we're not evil people. We are people generally that desire to do good. We can all do our part to listen and understand and as much as possible to feel what it's like to walk in the shoes of somebody that's not like us, whether that's a male, so somebody that's female, whether that heterosexual, whether that's somebody that is gay or lesbian, et cetera, whether that is somebody that's white, and I could do that too, and I could do my best to live in the shoes of somebody that's aboriginal. That is what helps us get to a place of society where we just achieve better outcomes. Most humans do come with a basic wiring to be empathetic and just plugging in that perspective piece can really help people evolve there the way they interact with those around them. We've got about 10 minutes left here. And I want to get into some of the questions. We've actually had quite a lot come in over the last almost hour. And we're going to stick on our current topic here. You mentioned, of course, that you've got a diverse team. And I've got a person here asking, I'm an immigrant person of color working in real estate. And I've heard so many racial comments. How do you respond? So I would put it to you, Colin, you know, how do you respond? And then you also lead a team, of course, we said you've encountered that as well in a leadership role. So how did you respond? I'll go to the second point first. Uh, how did I respond? I was going to give a little bit more defining characteristics, but let's just say a racialized female where that comment was made towards in, in January. And how did I respond? My perspective as a leader is to serve my team. That's what I do. And so my responsibility there was to be of service to her, to help her, first of all, to sort of understand the level of impact those comments had on her and to also help her sort of support her to say that I believe in her. Unfortunately, the situation had passed. I was learning about it after it happened. But to say that I strongly believe in her and her capability and her experience and the role that she brings to the team and more importantly, the role that she plays in society, and to state the obvious that these comments were completely ridiculous. So that was my role there. I think in the roles that I've been in, in the moment, the temptation is to go sort of say stuff that is emotionally driven. And I think one just had, you know, what I have done is basically taken a pause and literally breathe in the air. And then there's always a moment when you want to say something where you know it's coming. And you got to catch yourself in that moment. And you basically have to catch the emotion. You got to distill the emotion out. And you either have to do a couple things. I've been in situations where I've just gone on, or you have to say, you know, in a very rational way that, for instance, I'm surprised that I'm hearing this comment today, or that's not how I view things, but let's move on. Things like that have gotten me out of some of those tricky situations. And sometimes you also have to realize that you have to win the war and not necessarily the battle. So in the moment, you got to catch yourself from making comments that are not going to be constructive to the experience, right? And we call it above the line and below the line. And as much as possible, I try to keep my comments above the line. And sometimes that just requires you to get away from the situation, reflect over it overnight, perhaps talk to a mentor or two or family members, and then readdress the situation the next day or the day after. You know, I've done that as well. Thanks, Colin. People love to hear that perspective and the challenges that you'd go through. Along those same lines, maybe this is more of a positive. One of the questions is, what would be your key takeaways 
or maybe it's advice for other Black professionals within the commercial real estate space? Yeah, a couple comments. One is overall, which is, and you probably got this from the point I'm talking about law school, follow your passion. Figure out what your passion is. A lot of people say that they don't know what their passions are. My challenge is you probably do. What's getting in the way is the folks that tell you you can't do this. It's not appropriate. It's whatever. So a lot of times folks see more challenges than they do realize where their passions are. And life's far more exciting, far more interesting if you follow your passions. And that's an overall comment. The thing for Black people is Black people in Canada tend to get streamed out into different things. And that's also gender point too. People end up assuming that if you're Black, you're less likely to want to be an investor, be a real estate broker, be a transactions person, or whatever it is. And so passion point goes doubly for somebody that's Black. You got to not just have the passion, you got to persist in believing when nobody else will believe in you. You got to persist in believing that this is the thing for you. And you got to also find allies that will help you get to where you want to go. In everything in life, there's going to be people that are supporters, people that are going to be neutral, and people that are going to oppose. And that goes for everything, including this. And so if you're a Black person, you got to find the supporters. You got to also find, you know, ID who's neutral and who's opposed, but you got to find your supporters, got to get them in your camp, and you got to realize you can't do it alone. You do it with the help and support of other people. But my point on passion goes double. You got to persist in following your passion. It's amazing the theme this carried through has come up a couple of times now that I think you like people saying no to you in some degrees because it gives you a chance to really contemplate the opposing viewpoint. Not everybody wants that kind of viewpoint presented to them, but I do like that you take that as a point to learn from. We've got a question here, and it's, it's a, a bit of a heavy one. Do you think that Canada is that advanced and ready for this kind of change at a corporate level? <laughs> I think Canada can embrace this change. I think Canada from a corporate level is behind the US. And that's not just Colin sits here and thinks that. That's look at the stats. I think we are behind. And I'd also say that goes for the real estate industry as well. Even though I'd say in the US, the real estate industry is not too far ahead of Canada. So are we ready for this change? Not sure. I think at the end of the day, we'll know in two years whether we are ready for this change or not. I think we got to sort of Number one, make it less awkward for people. There's a lot of people that feel very awkward sort of having this conversation. Number two is we got to shift the paradigm from this is taking a pie and dividing it different ways to, you know, this is not about that. It's about growing the pie. And so when we talk about people in leadership roles, for instance, and the natural intuition is, ah, well, they just want a bigger slice of the pie. To me, it's very much around we got to sort of as a nation be a lot more entrepreneurial, a lot more innovative, a lot more ambitious. We got to harness the people that are here and we got to leverage them to their full potential. And a lot of that is much more of the American psyche, by the way, than it is in Canada. We got to adopt that psyche and we got to view the diversity thing in that lens. So I think that there are people out there that do believe that. I think corporations and enough of them, Canadian corporations have made statements this year to say, we're in for this. But candidly, I think that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And we'll know in two or three or five years whether Canada was ready or not. Unfortunately, Colin, we've got time for one last question. I'm going to go off the board here and maybe just allow you to get some closing remarks. And as it's along the same things of the conversation we're having right now, there's been a lot of momentum with the conversations about diversity. I think we're, everybody's having these talks and, and, of course, these thought leadership webinars like we're participating in right now. 
how do you keep that momentum going forward? Yeah, it's like any major big initiative, right? So you got quick wins, which is what are little things that we can do that's actually going to start delivering some outcomes. So whether it's take the recruiting piece, instead of going to two schools, let's add three more. Instead of going to the same clubs over and over again, why don't we sort of look for some additional clubs to go look at? Instead of having our interview process being one person and they decide, why don't we have multiple people with multiple perspectives and have a place where people have to actually advocate for whoever they want and other people can constructively challenge? That's not just a diversity thing. That's a good hiring practice thing. And so I think we should also be very, very focused on outcomes, right? And away from the platitudes and the broad statements, those are great, but I think we covered that. I think we should actually look for how are we actually improving our outcomes by doing this. And so it is a long haul thing. But I think like any sort of major thing, you make changes and you make step by step by step by step changes and you constantly push yourself to get better and better and better. Just quickly before we wrap up, where can people go and read more about the Black Opportunity Fund? Yes. Okay. So blackopportunityfund.ca is the website. We've got Twitter. I think it's Black BLK Opportunity. We've got LinkedIn. We've got Facebook. We've got Instagram. We pretty much have every sort of way that you want to connect. And to the point on the press, there's been a a lot of press on it. And so a straight Google search will find it. And then if you want to email somebody, info at blockopportunityfund.ca. And that email inbox is monitored by a lot of people. And so you will get a response. Or you know, folks want to look me up, I'm, I'm happy to engage there as well. Great. Well, thanks, Colin. Thanks so much for taking your time to do this. Great conversation. Obviously, very, very important conversation. And I look forward to having it again someday soon with you. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been fun and great to be here. George, back to you. I'm so sorry to say that we've run out of time. Thank you very much, Colin and Aaron and Adam. It was truly a very, very insightful conversation, not only on some real estate-related impacts in the market and so on, but your insights, Colin, on the diversity and inclusion piece and the equity piece in the real estate market were particularly significant and very, very well received. As a reminder to all of you, there will be a follow-up email tomorrow that will include a link to view a recording of today's presentation. If you found this event useful, please share it with your colleagues. Once you leave the webcast, a short survey will pop up in your browser window. We would greatly appreciate your feedback on this event. Tomorrow and Wednesday afternoon, we will continue this webinar series. Check our website at realestateforums.com for more details on the speakers and the starting times and the topics. A brief reminder to you that registration for the 29th Real Estate Forum is almost gone. There are tickets still available at $395 for a very dynamic program featuring 90 speakers that include 41 presidents, Stephen Polos, Thomas Friedman, and others. Check it out on our main website. In fact, one of the panel's discussions will be a continuation of what Colin was just discussing regarding equity and inclusion in the real estate industry, both as it pertains to Blacks, but also to Indigenous Canadians as well. While you're there, check out the Real Estate Forums Club with more than 20 benefits that you receive as a member. This includes saving 20% on registration for all our conferences. So on behalf of the Real Estate Forums team, remain healthy and safe. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. 
The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.